great job, Donnie. Appreciate that. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, <clears throat> uh, I want to invite you to turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We started that chapter last week. For those of you that uh, may be visiting today or uh, just a uh, reminder, we, have, uh, we chose the book of 2 Corinthians uh, based on the fact that we want to uh, where our church is at right now and what we're, God has opened up for us, so many different aspects of ministry that we are working through. We realize that the book of 2 Corinthians is really the handbook of ministry. And if you're going to do something for the Lord, you might as well learn to do it the right way. So that's how we uh, got into 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, I've told people throughout the whole study that uh, every chapter breaks down a different aspect of the concept of what ministry is. And uh, I think last week we had a, a, a great start to this chapter, which really deals with as ministers. And remember now, the Bible says that we all ought to be ministers. Maybe not everybody is a pastor, but everybody needs to be a minister. Minister simply means ministering to people. And that's what we as Christians are supposed to do. Husbands minister to their wives. Husbands and wives minister to their kids. Families minister to other families. Uh, men minister to other men. Women minister to other women. I, we, in our church, we even got uh, uh, some of you, you little kids that are already ministering to other little kids. And that's what it's supposed to be. And uh, we saw that in chapter 6, we deal with the fellowship of the minister, what we should be in fellowship with. And for those of you who intend to work with people and uh, maybe be part of our people ministry in time where you really work with situations where people really need some help, or maybe you just want to better, have a better understanding of why things are the way they are in life. You know, many times we go through things in life that uh, hearing a message like today or even a series like this will help put everything in perspective of why those things are the way they are in your life. Last week, I, I, gave, you, I gave you five scenarios, uh, basically why uh, people leave a good Bible-believing churches and don't go to church anymore. And uh, we saw that the basic fundamental problem with that, uh, why people do that, all five scenarios came back to one concept. And, you know, when you learn things like this, it's invaluable to you, whether you're going to work with people or you just want to be able to figure things out for yourself. The Lord will take a message like last week and, and really exercise you. You know, as I was speaking to you, I, I could actually see it in many of your faces that you were relating to what I was saying, and you were actually, what I was speaking, telling, laying these things out, you were thinking of scenarios, you know, that you could relate to, maybe in the past, maybe present day scenarios, but, you know, from this point on, every time you hear of a similar situation, you're going to think in your mind, oh, yeah. See, what scenario was that? Oh, yes, it was number one, number two, number three, number four. And one of the things that you have to learn in time, if you're ever going to be good with people, and, as, and, and really, and this helps in a lot of ways, is simply understand the patterns of human nature. That's why, you know, it doesn't matter if we're talking about somebody in, in, in Moses' day, somebody in Zachariah's day, somebody in Jesus' day, or somebody in your grandmother's day, or somebody in our day. Human nature is always the same. It never changes. And the patterns of human nature change. Society changes. Styles of clothes changes. Things we do changes. Everything changes in life except the Word of God and the patterns of people's human nature. It's always the same. And that's why 
the Bible talks about how relevant the stories in the Old Testament are. Many people think, well, the Old Testament really doesn't apply to me because it, it would happen so long ago. Well, no, it may happen a long time ago, but human nature is the same today as it was back in the Old Testament days. And uh, it's something that uh, you'll, you'll, you'll just learn. We learned last week that the bottom line, the baseline, the lowest common denominator of understanding our fellowship starts with our fellowship with the truth of God's Word. That's the fundamental baseline uh, fellowship that where it all starts. And fellowship with the truth of God's Word, not just the truth about everything in life, it starts with the truth about ourselves, recognizing who we are, recognizing that the Word of God pointing to us and showing us not just the good things in our life, but the things we have to work on, the things we have to develop in our life. That's really where it starts, fellowship with the truth of God's Word. And like I said, the truth about ourselves uh, and then everything else after that. If you're ever going to get to the point where you really are valuable in helping people through their struggles, and this is very important. We talked about this last week. You've got to realize that one of the things that you've got to try to get people to do, it's not easy. It's always complicated, and especially when you're dealing with a problem that's been going on for years and years and years. You've got to get people come to the end of the blame game. We talked about this last week. And the reason why you have to is because, and I said this last week, the list of people, places, circumstances, things that you can blame for the problems in your life are endless. And at some point, if a person is going to really get to where God wants them to be and get everything that God has for them, they've got to come to the end of blaming other people, other circumstances, and they've got to take responsibility for their own actions. It's just, it's just the way it is. And uh, you'll see when you start to do that, and the only way to do that is to hold them accountable to the baseline of fellowship, which is true. You'll find out what a person is really in fellowship with, truth or not, the first time you've got to deal with them on an issue uh, because it'll all go back to what they're in fellowship with. I told you last week, he that loveth a honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet, out of Proverbs. Tremendous verse, tremendous principle. When you do that, you'll see the problem so fast it'll be unbelievable. People will always love you as long as you agree with them. And in most cases, the moment you've got to deal with somebody on an issue that's not a pleasant issue, you're going to see where their fellowship lies. It's just the way it works. I mean, you don't have to be a, a brain scientist. I guess not brain scientist. That's a, a rocket scientist. Brain, you don't have to be a rocket surgeon to figure all this out. It, it, it's, it's, it's clear. <laughs> it's clear. And, and, and another thing, you know, you learn to expect that from people. I, I told you, when you work with people, you don't get in, you don't take things personal. You work it with the truth. When you're fellowship with truth, you realize that some people are going to accept the truth, some people are going to reject the truth. It just simply is what it is. Uh, but when it comes down, when it comes to the idea of fellowship, you know, and I said this last week, we all have somewhat of a conf, uh, convoluted idea of what fellowship is. We have, many times we have a misconception of it. And I don't know what convoluted means, but I heard somebody use it this week, and it really sounded impressive, so I hope I used it in the right spot. After softball, we have a softball league. After softball, we all go to Pappy's Pizza. I know some of you like it, some of you don't. But the bottom line is we go there to fellowship. You guys get on a goofy, co uh, you know, 
karaoke, Terry, get on that machine that plays the music and you sing and make fools of yourself. I, I think that's wonderful, you know. We bring new people there. We laugh. We have a great time. You know, after volleyball, we have a volleyball season that starts, you know. We have probably, I don't know, 14 or 15 softball teams, probably have that many in volleyball. Hundreds, of, not hundreds, but scores of people. And, uh, and uh, you know, afterwards we go to Jason's Deli, and we do the same thing. We take over the place, and we just have fun. Somebody has a birthday, they make them stand on a chair, we sing to them. You know, we, we all kinds of things. You know, this month is a great example. Uh, Halloween things going on, people having birthday, birthdays around here is always, a, you know, we're always looking for a time to party, and we blame it on fellowship, see, <laughs> which there's nothing wrong with. You know, all the time, groups of people get together to do things as Christians, and we call it fellowship. And it certainly is. But all that fellowship that we do and all the fun things that we do, when you get down to the bottom line, you know as well as I do, it's based on and built around a book, the Word of God. That's the only medium of our fellowship together. And that's the truth that, of God's Word that forms the core of our fellowship of us being in Christ. The only real reason we get together and have a great time is because we're all saved and die. We're all saved and we die. We're going to heaven. We're in love with a book. We want to do what God wants us to do. And we use all those things to get other people uh, involved and try to help them because we know what's helped us. So you've got to understand that. I think what makes this chapter a, a truly an outstanding chapter uh, is this chapter shows us the progression of biblical fellowship. We just don't want to stay in the mindset that even though it is fellowship, going to pappies, having parties, and doing all these things that we do together, they're fun, and that's fellowship, but it goes deeper than that. And fellowship, true, biblical, baseline, Bible-defined fellowship starts with truth, and then it develops itself uh, from that point. And it, this chapter, this chapter uh, progresses through five stages of what your fellowship with Christ should be. It's an incredible chapter. And we're going to get down now, and as we have in this chapter, we're getting down to the bottom line. We're getting down now and putting out definitions that if you're paying attention or want to pay attention, you can really understand some great things here. And I'm going to read the second set of, of, of verses here. We read our first set last week and on fellowship, and I'm going to add to it today uh, some things that we talked about last week, and we'll move on from there. Now, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We want to pick it up in verse 4 through verse 10. Now, remember, we saw last week in uh, verse 9, it said, giving no offense to anything that the ministry be not blamed. That's where we left off last week. Then he picks it up in verse 4. But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Now, Father, help us today to uh, take this passage and begin to walk our way through it. We pray, Father, you'll help us truly get to the point in our life where 
we really uh, understand what true fellowship is. That all the Pappy's Pizza and all the Jason's Deli and all the parties and all the things uh, really don't mean anything. Uh, it won't get us through one thing in life that's tough. No, what will get us through is us being in fellowship and growing in fellowship with the things that we need to grow. And we'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. For the sake we ask it, amen. Now, as you grow spiritually, and we, we know a little bit about this because we've talked about it. We know that the Bible clearly lays out seven stages of spiritual growth. By that I mean when you get saved, you start a process to get you to a point where you really can handle some things spiritually. We know as you develop yourself and you get become what God wants you to be, we also know from the book of Galatians that when you start doing things and becoming fruitful, that there's nine fruits of the Holy Spirit of God that God, God gives to you. He just does. As you develop yourself and your faith grows, your grace also grows. And uh, we know now that not only is there seven stages of spiritual growth, we, we, we've been through that before, not only do we understand that the fruit of the Spirit that God gives us, but now we know from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8, through 8, that there's seven things as you grow and develop yourself that you add to your faith. And we've talked about those things. But along with that and all of that development, the development of your fellowship grows too. Now that doesn't mean you have more parties and eat out more, but rather your fellowship with God's truth will develop you and take you and develop you right where God wants you for ministry uh, through the circumstances of life of the things that he's talking about here. You know, this is a great learning chapter. Uh, it really is. And uh, this chapter shows, uh, this chapter shows uh, you and I that development and process. And with all of that process, the Bible talks about the fact that through it, then as he says in verse uh, 4, but in all things, approving ourselves as ministers of God. Now look at that verse. He says in all things. What things? The things that he's talking about in verse 4 are the things that he mentions down through the rest of those chapters. And these are what we approve ourselves as the ministers of God. You know, many... Many young men and young ladies get themselves into trouble <clears throat> simply because they have had a bad self-image of themselves. Their mom or their dad have always belittled them or whatever. And uh, they're always seeking somebody's approval. And that can be a, that can be a dangerous thing if you, if you don't understand that uh, um, people can take advantage of that because you want their approval so bad that you'll do whatever they want you to do. And I've looked, and hey, hey, believe me, I have dealt over the years with a lot of people, male and female, with just that same scenario. They wanted somebody's approval so much that that person that they wanted the approval from could pretty much get them to do whatever they wanted to do. I've always looked at that and thought to myself, you know what? I wish God's people wanted God's approval so much that they were willing to do whatever he wanted them to do. You see, that's where it really comes down to. That's where the rubber really meets the road. And in chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, shows you the next stages of our development. And as a child of God in time, these things become what our fellowship should be with. Now, verse 4 through 10 is, as far as I'm concerned, the job of every Christian, what we should be in fellowship with Christ as a child of God. And, and I, I'm just, I'm, I'll say this too, I'm, and I'm here to help you. Nobody's mad at you today. 
but if you've been saved for 10 years or more, I'll give you 10 years just to figure it out. I normally give you five years. I'm extending it today because I grew in grace last week, so I'm giving you five more years now. But I'm telling you, if you've been saved 10 years or more and you're not here yet or aren't pretty well into this yet, you've got some issues. Something along the way did not get developed. And I'm not somebody to tell you what to do, but I suggest to you and give you some good advice that I, I'd pull yourself into a spiritual garage someplace and let somebody do a diagnostic check on you and find out where the undeveloped areas are and, and get those things worked on. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> this, in this passage itself <clears throat> that we're looking at today, and we're not going to get through this all today. I don't plan to. But you've got <clears throat> three sections in this section of verses I gave you today. Your first section is verses 4 through 7. And uh, your second section uh, will uh, come on down through, uh, I mean, uh, down through 4 through 7. Your first section, I'm sorry, will be verses 4 and 5. Your second session will be verses 6, 7, and 8. And the thing that I want you to see about this, and this is really important. This is why I tell you the important things in the Word of God. Now, you look at the things that are listed there in the first section. And I think there's 10 of them here. And when you look at these 10 things, you're going to see that the key word here is in these things. It talks about in strifes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labor. You see that? Now, the second section in this passage will be verse 6, 7, and 8. And I think there's nine here. But the key word here is not in, but by. See that thing? By the word of truth, by the power of God. That's a tremendous thing. Most people would never see that. Most people would never think anything about that. But when you really look at this chapter and really trying to get what it's saying, then you're going to see these things. Uh, in the first set of verses, the, the fellowship, these are the things uh, that you should, be fellow, you should be fellowshipping in these things. The second set shows you that uh, these are the things that you have that fellowship by. In other words, you're to be in these things, but you stay in fellowship by doing these things. Oh, that's tremendous stuff, man. There it is broken down for you where you know that you need to be in fellowship with these things, but you stay in fellowship with these things by doing these things. Incredible. And this is a great teaching chapter. Then we get into verses 8 and 10, which we won't today. There's six great contrasts of a child of God. Oh, they're incredible. So you're going to see that this chapter is really a, a great chapter for teaching us. This is a great, great, great learning chapter. Now, not only do you know why from last week people uh, quit going to good churches and leave good churches based on the five scenarios, and I give you a little challenge, just watch those, watch those things over the next couple of years. But now you're going to find out what really what real Bible-based fellowship is from where it starts with truth last week and then how it should develop in your life over the years and when it doesn't, how that it's always going to wind you up in the wrong fellowship. And what I say last week, the wrong fellowship will always produce out of fellowship. It's as simple as that. The Christian life is not hard to understand. It's not complicated. Not when you bring it down to the basic level of the Bible and truth. I'm not a very complicated person. Uh, I, don't under, I don't deal with complicated things very well. 
And when it came to the Bible, I was told all of my life how complicated and hard that it was. Many people get so intimidated by that, they never really do anything with the Bible. Of course, that's not true. Uh, if I can understand the Bible, you certainly can, as most of you, if not all of you, are much smarter than I am, and you're much younger than I am, not all of you, but many of you, and you still got, you know, 90% of your brain cells. I lost 40% of mine along the way, so, you know, it's, if I can do it, you can do it. And uh, I told you a couple of years ago, some of you will probably remember this, Bob's going <clears> to... <throat> Gob's going to meet with all of the prayer groups this round, and he's going to take one a week. And he's going to basically go back and reinforce what we talked about uh, when we started this thing, just to keep everybody on the right deal. I, I love that. I, I, that's good stuff. That's, that's the kind of stuff that I look for, uh, that I like to do. And you remember that uh, two or three years ago, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure it was on a New Year's Eve, uh, we talked about, and I told you that, that the next two or three years were going to be really defining times for our church. I, I told you it would test, uh, maybe some of you have forgotten, maybe some of you just blew it off that night. I'm sure we could go back and find the tape that I'm telling you I said it. I told you the next two or three years would be a defining years for our church. It would test our mettle as to our commitment to God and to ministry. You see, when a church starts, Hey, first four, five, six, even seven years is all fun time. Everybody getting to know everybody, all kinds of fun things. Everything is new, all, all kinds of new things that Bob's going to bring us through in the Bible to help us put it all together. Everybody gets all the material and everybody's happy about it. See, but then there comes a point when you got to do something with it. In our worldly life, we're, there's famous old sayings that we always use. One of them is fish or cut bait. The other one is get in or get out. One of my favorite grandmother used to say was something about, or get off the pot, but <laughs> we're not going to go there on this particular situation this morning. You, I think your probably grandmother probably told you that too. And maybe not, maybe you just all knew my grandmother, but she used to say it all the time. She had some incredible things that I couldn't even tell you this morning. But, and, and the thing is, there's so much wisdom in them, and it's so true of life, it's just, they're, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not politically correct today, I guess you'd say. And, but I'm telling you, brother, nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, exposes who we really are more than when a church gets to the place where you're ready to turn up the heat on ministry and you grow to the place. We all have a fun time. We all learn a lot of things. Now God comes down and says, okay, I didn't give you all this so you could just be puffed up, proud, and pompous. Now we're going to do something with it. <laughs> he turns the heat up. And I'll tell you, that's when you really, you really find out where the rubber is on the road. That's, and that's now you're seeing that. And you, you continue to see that. And that's where we are now. You see, God is holding us accountable with everything that he gave us. Now, he lists these things in our, in our first section here we're going to talk about today that we should be in fellowship with. And uh, I, I would ask you today, if you're honest with yourself and your baseline of truth, uh, I, I take a little reality test this morning. I took it 40 times this week on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday and Saturday of looking at this stuff. And, you know, every time I get up, I tell you, every time I get up and you got to bear through a sermon that really bothers you or nails you or gets you where you need to be gotten, I got news for you. You only had to hear it once. I have to go through it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And boy, those fingers come through me before they come to you. 
And, uh, and so I take a little reality test today, if I were you. Uh, I had asked yourself, is when Paul's talking about all this, is he talking about me? Uh, who am I really in fellowship with? Am I really in fellowship with truth? I always tell Christians, <clears throat> if you really want to find out what kind of Christian you are to yourself, or you only got to ask yourself one question. I think it's probably the greatest single question test you can give yourself. <clears throat> and I've used it for years. I, I, I saw it years ago. And I thought to myself, and you all have been in churches. You know what it takes to make a church work. I always tell people, if you want to find out what kind of Christian you really are, and you're really honest with yourself, with what you do, what you don't do, and all the things that, you know, we alibi about, just put in your mind scenario that you are a pastor of the church, and everybody in that congregation is just like you are right now. How much would you get done? That's a great test. That's a great question. Verse 4 says, but in all things approve, proving ourselves as ministers of God. And, uh, and we're going to look at it today as we start to come down through here. So let's pick it up here in verse 4 and just look at some of these things. The first thing he says is this, in much patience. Now, he didn't say in patience. Now, I realize in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, as I said earlier, there's seven things you add to your faith and patience is one of them. It doesn't say much patience there. It says much patience here. You know why? Because in dealing with people, you've got to have much patience. Uh, in dealing with people, I'm talking about God's people and unsaved people, uh, it takes a lot of patience to deal with people. Now, you wouldn't believe what I'm about to tell you, but after 45 or 40 plus years in the ministry, I I'm telling you this is true. I'd say that it takes more patience to deal with God's people than it does with unsaved people. I, I just, I tell you that. And I'll and I tell you, the reason why it's so hard for that to believe is somebody may say, well, I don't, it's because I understand you expect more from God's people. You expect God's people to be easier to deal with because they're saved. They're going to heaven. They got a Bible. And well, you know, unsaved people are just unsaved people. You expect more from God's people because they're God's people. But that's not usually how it works, and that's usually not true. God's people can drive you literally crazy, man. I mean, because where an unsaved man, the Bible says, uh, the unnatural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14, uh, the saved man has received those spiritual things. He should know better. He should be in a position where he knows what is right and wrong. He should, it should be easier to deal with somebody who's saved. But it's not most of the time. And you'll learn this by experience. You begin to work with people, <clears throat> some of you already have. <clears throat> you'll begin to work with people, you'll learn by experience. Hey, some of the most wicked, diabolical, hateful, lying, cheating, self-serving people I ever met are Christians or at least claim to be a Christian. And uh, you see, and, and brother, if you're going to work with people like that, you need to have not just patience, you need to have much patience. Now, obviously, somebody says, how do you get patient? Well, we know, first of all, the book of James says that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So you get patience by going through difficult things that force you to trust God, wait on God, and do all the things that we're not very good at doing. 
But another great area, at least for me, that, that helps me uh, deal with people, uh, God's people or unsaved people, and give them the patience that they need, is I never forget, I never forget how patient God was with me when I was probably a, a real pill, and still am in many times, to deal with. And I try, to get, I try to view other people through how God viewed me. I try to give other people what God gave me. It doesn't always work. It always works for me because you just, you got to have patience. And in, in this case, you got to have much patience. And the Bible says that we ought to be in fellowship with patience. You see, fellowship is something that starts in your life and comes into your life once you get the root fellowship going, which is truth. Because you'll understand the truth about yourself. Hey, you understand the truth about yourself, then you have a better position to understand the truth about other people. And it doesn't make you uh, hate them. It doesn't make you want bad things to happen to them. It doesn't make you revengeful if they've done you wrong. Because you think back in your life of all the hateful, revengeful things that you've done wrong, and God exercised much patience with you and me. That's just the way it works. Patience is a character quality in a Christian's life of his relationship and him being in fellowship with truth. You see, you can't be in fellowship with any of these I'm going to talk about without first being in fellowship with truth. And it, it, this is why it's a great chapter. It's a great chapter. Now, in verse 4, the second thing, and I'm glad he didn't put the word much here, <laughs> in affliction. You know, we talked about the uh, uh, affliction that Paul went through when we came through, well, many a time. I remember in 2 Corinthians, I think it was chapter 2, if I remember, 8 verses 8 through 10, that how he thought that they had the sentence of death in them. He thought he was going to die. He was really going through all of the things that he went through. And, and I got to say, this is probably the hardest thing for God's people to be in fellowship with because God's people don't want anything to do with any fellowship with affliction. We talked about Joe Olstein last week, you know, and, and we kind of we make fun of Brother Joel, you know, and all of the things that he does and how goofy he is. And I, I, I wish I, I've tried. I've looked in the mirror. I think I'd have a much more successful ministry if I could smile like he does. <laughs> he smiles everything. He gets a smile on his face and he stays with that thing for 40 minutes in a sermon. And then he'll stop and he'll smile, you know. And people just love him. I worked on it. I can't. I've broken nine mirrors trying to get it done. It ain't going to happen anymore. But, you know, we make fun of him and, and talk about, you know, uh, that obviously what he does, he's, you know, he's phony. He never preaches salvation. It's always about all the good things in life. He's like, uh, you know, Norman Vincent... Uh, Peel used to be uh, when about the power of positive thinking and no negative things and everything good in life. And, and, and I look at that and, and we all talk about it. And, and I think to myself, you know, he's no more of a phony than some of God's people I've met over the years. I mean, at least he's honest about who he is. I mean, he's totally upfront that when you come to his church, you're going to pay 15 bucks at the door. He's totally up front that he makes no bones that he's going to tell anybody that they're a sinner and there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. He's going to, he makes it right up front. And this is why people are drawn to that. You know why? Because people want that kind of life today. 
And we make fun of him and we talk about how unbiblical he is and unscriptural he is and how, you know, people go there and what's the idea? You have to pay to get into hear some guy preach about the gospel. Well, first of all, he's not preaching the gospel, so that answers that question. But but God's people want the same thing today. They want a they want they want a Joel Olstein mentality and lifestyle without Joel Olstein being in their living room. They want the they want all the prosperity that God has for them. They want all the good things in life. Uh, they, want, uh, they want their salvation to be perfect. They want their walk with God to be perfect. They want God's blessings in every aspect. They want everything that God has for them, all except suffering and affliction. That's where we're at today. Wrong fellowship always leads to out of fellowship. And he says in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 through 14, wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. Then he says in verse 13, now here's where our fellowship should be. Let us go therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. For we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. He said in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, the great story about Moses. What a great story. He says, and we all know the story of Moses and what he represents and what a great picture he is in the Bible. He says, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's a great passage. Here's Moses who had an opportunity. He was born in Pharaoh's household. He was elevated to a very high place in the kingdom. He was up there. Uh, number two in the kingdom, or number uh, uh, under Pharaoh in the kingdom, had everything that he wanted, could do whatever he wanted to do. It was incredible. And yet, with, in spite of all of that, he realized what God had for him to do. He realized who God's people were. And the Bible says, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of reward. You know what? He was willing to put that all aside because he realized that in fellowship with God, when it starts with a baseline of truth, as it develops, you have to fellowship and be in affliction that Christ went through. Okay? Philippians 3.10, oh, what a great verse, that I may know him. Oh, we all want to know him, the power of his resurrection. Oh, yeah, I want to be a strong spiritual person. And the fellowship of his suffering. Whoop, I'll stop right there. That's where we're at today. You, you, you got to have that fellowship of his suffering. You know why? Because it says when you have that, then you're being made conformable unto his death. You know, most people, most people don't want Obama to get reelected. And I don't really get into politics one way or the other. I think that everybody's a crook in the political world, so that's my take on it. But most people don't want Obama to be reelected. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you why. The only fundamental reason why they do not, in most cases, not every case, but most cases, is because they're afraid that if he gets reelected again, the economy's going to go, everything's going to go, you're going to lose your job. Everybody, in other words, they're afraid if he gets back in, we're going to suffer affliction. We don't want that. 
We want everything that God has. We want to be in fellowship with God. We want to walk in the light and see in the light. We want to go hand in hand down the road over to Emmaus. We want to have all those wonderful times except when it comes to what he went through and the sufferings and the afflictions that you and I have to go to. Now, again, you've got to clarify this today. I'm not talking about the afflictions that we go through because we're stupid. I'm not talking about the afflictions we go through because we're dysfunctional and undisciplined and we get ourselves into all kinds of problems because of sin. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about suffering, affliction, and being in fellowship with what Christ went through. His reproach, not ours. Oh, Mel, my father and the Lord used to say all the time, uh, I've heard him say it many, many times. Somebody asked him one time if he was enjoying his salvation or he was enduring his salvation. He gave back one of the greatest classic lines that I ever heard. Somebody would expect him to say, well, no, I'm enjoying my salvation. Somebody else would say, well, brother, I'm just getting through it. He was smarter than that. He looked at that guy and he said, and the question was, are you, in, are you enjoying your salvation or you're enduring your salvation? He looked back and said, I'm enjoying my enduring. You know why he could say that? And he meant it. You know why he could say that and mean it? Because that's what he was in fellowship with. That's what he's in fellowship with. And um, I, I don't know how to tell God's people this, and it doesn't matter you tell them, but I'm going to tell you something. God is going to break America and bring her to her knees one way or the other. Amen. And you might as well mark that down in all your other notes you're putting down there. Well, number three, verse four, in necessities. A child of God should be satisfied uh, with just the necessities of life. Now, when I start to say something like this, you know me, I'm not some prude. I'm not somebody that thinks you shouldn't have a nice house. I got a nice house. I, I think you should have nice things. I'm not saying you got to walk around with a backpack on your back and one pair of underwear and a pair of socks. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, I, I, a lady one time showed me through her house. A, a friend of mine lives over in, in Mission, Kansas over there, a beautiful place, and she loves showing off her house. A beautiful house. But, you know, much more than, than I would need and probably much more what they would need, but that's all they got in life. And she was walking me through, showing me all this, and I counted I counted a house with six bathrooms. There, you know, I may be wrong, and correct me if I am, but if you need a house with six bathrooms, I would think that would be because you had kidney issues, <laughs> gastric problems, that you wanted to be close to a bathroom wherever you were. I mean, you can only use one at a time. And I do know that variety is the spice of life, but come on, come on. A child of God should be satisfied with just the necessities in life. A Christian should be able to go through life without everything he thinks he needs. That, hey, I'm as guilty of it as anybody I'm speaking to today. I'm famous for, let's go to the mall to see what we don't have. See? <laughs> I mean, you go to a shopping mall and there's a hundred stores. I mean, you can go shopping for everything you want. 50 of those stores will be closed. I walked into a, a, a place called Nordstrom's. Ever hear of it? Their makeup section rivals 20th Century Fox when it comes to makeup. They've got 100 ladies there that will fix your face. You sit in little chairs with lights and somebody painting your face and mitting you and showing you in the mirror. I just took a quick survey. At least, 
You know there's something wrong with a country that's got 500 shades of lipstick you can choose from? <laughs> but it, you, go to, you go to wherever you want to go. Go buy jeans. Just Now you got Levi's. You got 20 different brands. Just take Levi's. You got 501s, 504s, 506s, 593s. You got 1816. You got 869s. You got to have a you got to have a program to figure out what you got. Then they're going to say, "Well, what kind do you want? We have we have boot cut, we have regular fit, we have uh, relaxed fit, and we have the ones for people who don't want anybody to think they're fat. That are the elastic ones. <laughs> what do you want? We got some that are brand new, really worn, kind of worn, medium worn, stone washed. Buying the jeans is like ordering a steak." Medium rare. I want my jeans medium ripped. <laughs> Grocery stores. Grocery stores are food warehouses. I was in Romania. I was in the East Bloc countries uh, for a, quite a while, back and forth, after the wall came down there, after Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear it on that wall. And I stayed with families in some of these small little places, and I would take 20, 30 people in there. We'd fly in, horrendous flight, trying to get through border customs and everything to get where you needed to go. And it was, it was, it was just, I mean, it was great stuff, but it was just, uh, it was really a, much patience needed to be there. We sat at the border from Hungary going into Romania for about 12 hours. And uh, basically, they want you to bribe them to get through. So when you bribe them to get through, then you get through. Uh, it's just goofy stuff. But when we, we were working with little churches, and we were basically teaching them how to disciple their people with the same material we use here for you, and it was in their language of Romania. And I remember at 5.30 in the morning, the, the, the wife where I lived, and I went with her one morning, went down to the store in the neighborhood area there, and the, at 5.30 in the morning, the, the line was, I'd say, a good 1,000 feet of women waiting before the store even opened at 6 o'clock or 6.30 just to get bread. And they ran out of bread uh, long before all the people got what they wanted. I walked into the store, and, and there were nothing but bare shelves other than, oh, eight or nine fruit jars with something that was canned that looked like beets or eggs or something, I don't know, that looked like it had been there since Washington crossed the Delaware. It was unbelievable, the poverty that they had. Uh, they had to grow their own food. They had everything that they had to have. I felt terrible even eating there, but there's no restaurants to go to. This was the result of 40 years of communism, man. And uh, they, they, they had nothing, and I, I felt terrible. And yet, because I was an American and a Christian and a pastor, they, they wanted to make sure, that I'm sure that they went without so I would have. And I felt terrible about that. I mean, these people had nothing. But I, as I stood there and I looked at them and I spent that quality time that I had there for going back and forth for probably two years or so, I come to a great conclusion. With the communism and the persecution of communism, we held a revival service in a soccer stadium that uh, must have had 25,000 people in it. And uh, thousands got saved. And was right across from the KGB former headquarters and, and where they took people who were, went to churches or preached the gospel and tortured them. And there, right across from that soccer field, every window was open and every former KGB guy was listening to the sermon of the gospel. 
It's incredible. But you know what? With all of that, with all that they went through and all that they didn't have, you know what? They were much happier than most of you are. They were most happier than most of God's people. You know why? Because they have learned to live with necessities. America thinks that riches and money are the key to happiness. And they think it's the key to success. Now, I'm not saying you don't have to have money to live and go through those things. I, I, I'm with you. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I believe it has to be a balance. But there's, hey, guys, every week, every month, I'm faced with people that call me on the phone about some quick get-rich scheme that somebody is propagating out there to basically just rip you off. I mean, there are 100,000 money-making schemes out there, and many of them are put in or cloaked in the aspect of, oh, this is Christian. And God's people are just stupid when it comes to those things. Um, they, they, the people will say, well, you know what? Well, you know, you need to do this because God wants you to be rich. God doesn't necessarily, he doesn't want you to be rich. He wants you to live with the necessities that you have. Somebody will say, well, you know what? Well, just look. Look at all that you could do for the Lord in ministry if you were rich. Hey, come on. Come on. What you do for God in ministry has nothing to do with how much money you got in your pocket. It's how much of the Holy Spirit of God's inside you. Amen. It's ridiculous. Years ago, I had a kid uh, that, you know, and, and I, I, never, I don't cut him any slack. You know, I, I have a little patience for that. I take out much on that one on mine. And I, I, I told him he had this... It was a scam is what it was. And he was trying to hook up people in, our, in my Sunday school class to do it. And I just pulled him in and said, I don't want that to happen. And he said, well, this, he couldn't understand. This is a great thing. I'm trying to help your people make money. And I said, you're trying to scam my people. And he said, well, how can you sit there and tell me it's a scam? You don't even know what it is. And I said, I'll tell you how I know it's a scam and you're a scam and the whole thing's a sham. And the fact that they all rhyme just makes it easier to say. <laughs> I don't think I said that part to him. But anyway, I said, you've been in my class now for what, four or five years? In the last week, I've watched you and heard about you talking to 30 people in my Sunday school class about this deal. In the five years that I've known you, you've never talked to 30 people in your life about Christ. You're a phony. Say, what happened? He would be scenario number four in leaving a good church. It's what it is. You realize God could give anybody sitting here this morning, God could get you, you really believe God could, Robin, God could give you a million dollars tomorrow. Do you believe that? Yeah. <laughs> My wife's shaping her head. She knows. She buys lottery tickets. She knows where we're at. <laughs> I don't ever give her any trouble as long as she ties off of it. John, you believe God could give you a million dollars tomorrow if he wanted to? Yeah. Joe, you do? Gary, yeah. come to this side. Bob, you, ble- you don't believe he could. Okay, Bob, I didn't ask Bob anything. I was just passing through there. He, I thought he was somebody. You believe that? If he wanted to, he could give you a million dollars. He could give anybody in this place a million dollars tomorrow. No, he could do it this afternoon. He won't in most cases or all of, our, all of your cases. You know why? Because he knows you are as crooked as a dog's hind leg. And he knows if he gave you a million dollars, what you'd do with it. He knows he can't trust you with a million dollars. That's why he's not going to give you a million dollars. You say, Bob, will that really offend me? Hey, 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 hey. He hadn't given me a million dollars either. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. What you have with God 
What you do for God is not based on how much money you have. It's how much God has of you. And that's just the way it is. Are you in fellowship with the necessities of life? Let me give you some three good fellowship principles on necessities. First of all, Philippians 4.19. It says, but my God shall supply all of your need. Notice it didn't say wants, and notice it didn't say plural needs. It said need. You know why it said need? Because God meets your need one day at a time. That's why. And if you don't have that note in there, put it in. Philippians 4.11. Now, now that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am wherewith to be content. Now, for those of you where it says whatever state I'm in, you want to write in Missouri. <laughs> for those of you from the other side, you want to put in Kansas. The state that you're in is where you're at and what you're doing. But, oh, I, I love it, for I have learned. These are things you've got to learn. Another great one is 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And I'm not knocking at any of that. I, I'm saying it has to be a balance. But you have to come to the place in your life where you're, you have fellowship with the necessities. Because when you don't, it takes, it takes you away from everything and you lose your perspective. Well, the next one. In distresses. There's a story in the Bible that I think is so relevant to Christianity today. It's the story of Paul and Barnabas with young John Mark. I call it the John Mark Christianity scenario because I see it all the time. And probably most of you don't know this story, but uh, Paul and Barnabas, they went on the first missionary trip, and they took a young man by the name of John Mark. John Mark wanted to go. John Mark said, oh, I want to be with you guys, and I'm going to go. And, and obviously, the missionary trips back there, if you read the accounts, were very perilous. They were very hard. You didn't stay in a Motel 6 or a Motel 8 or a Holiday Inn. You, you slept on the rocks, and you sometimes you didn't eat, and you got severely persecuted, and you wasn't in friendly territory most of the time. Well, I don't know how long they were out and how long they were gone, but John Mark ran home to Mama. John Mark bailed on him in the middle of a very tough scenario and left them in a lurch. And Paul was a no-nonsense guy. I mean, Paul really took the ministry, you know, and that's a great study between the contrast of Paul and Barnabas and just character of people. But Paul, he was a no-nonsense guy. And boy, when John Mark did that, he wrote John Mark off. Now, when they come back, they get ready to go on their second missionary trip. And Barnabas says, hey, I talked to John Mark, and he's good to go, and uh, he knows he screwed up last time, and, and I want to take him along. Paul said, no way. He says, come on, Paul. You remember when you were that age? And he says, and he says, when I was that age, I was killing God's people. And God saved me from it. And I only got a short time to do what I got to do. And I don't need anybody who's going to bail on me when the situation gets tough and affliction comes. He's not going. Bible says the controversy got so great between them that they split. And Barnabas took John Mark and Paul got his guy and off they went. Now, John Mark, to his credit, if you don't know this, 
He really did get it put back together at some point. And he is the John Mark, if you don't know this, that wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wrote the second gospel in your Bible. So he got it squared away to his credit, and I'm glad he did. But I'm telling you, a child of God should be able to deal with some real crises and distresses in his own life, and yet also in the lives of others. A strong Christian stands when others falter. They are the rock that other people lean on when their world falls apart. They're heading in. I read in the newspaper this morning, and probably most of you saw it on the news too, about the uh, two Raytown Raytown firemen who saved uh, that lady uh, late last night about 3 o'clock in the morning that uh, they they pulled up on the scene. The house was ablaze. The roof had burned completely off, and they saw nobody standing out uh, in the yard like most of the times you do. Oh, my house is burning. So they assumed that somebody was still in there. I mean, this place was in an inferno. The roof had collapsed. The, everything was on fire. And these two brave firemen, uh, one of them with a hose, paving the way and watering the path, went in there, went upstairs, found this woman who was laying on a bed. The mattress was on fire and in flames. And they picked her up and carried her down. And then not only got her taken care of, rested a minute, went back in a second time to look for more people. And then if that wasn't enough, went back in a third time. I read that this morning and knowing I was going to preach what I preached today, and I thought to myself, man, I wish, I wish, I just wish God's people could have some of that determination. I mean, a strong Christian stands when others falter. He, a strong Christian heads into a terrible situation while others are heading out. They know what to do when others don't. There never comes a time when they say, oh, I can't deal with this. I got to get out of here. I'm going home. I can't, I can't deal with it. No, 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 no. A, a strong Christian that is in fellowship with truth, that in fellowship with distresses, realizes that that's what the life's all about. And a strong Christian stands when other falters. He's the rock that they lean on. Your persistence, uh, your perspective, your passion, your purpose, your ability to discern and have discretion will be the calming factor in a time of distress. People need that. People need something stable when their world is completely unstable. Listen, always go into the Word of God for the principles at hand to command and take command of every situation. Real leadership is taking command of a terrible situation that needs direction, staying the course, going the distance, working the problem, and leading through it. And that's what it takes. You know, you see, that, you, you see that problem with the nation of Israel. You see, as long as Moses was their leader and then Joshua was their leader, they held them accountable and they led them through some terrible distresses that held them together. <clears throat> as soon as Joshua died and we go into the book of Judges, we see weak leaders. And when we see weak leaders that are not tied into the fellowship with God the way those two boys were, the whole nation falls apart. That's what's wrong with our country. Our country, our country is the issue of no real leadership, no strong leadership. You know, it's a thing where uh, America, who once were feared uh, around the world and respected around the world, they look at us now as being weak. They know that they can do whatever we want to do, and all we'll do is send no more Big Macs over to them. They know that there'll be no repercussions of anything that they do. It's just harsh language. 
How do you see it in Christianity? No strong leaders today who will take a stand on the Word of God. Most pastors get up and tell you exactly what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. Most pastors don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to take a chance on you getting mad and leaving their church, and then what are we going to do? Because that family gives to this church or this or that. They're worried about the wrong things. I'm not worried about whether you give or you don't. That's between you and God. I'm worried about every time I stand in this pulpit, am I giving you the truth of the Word of God? That's all I care about. The rest will take care of itself. That's the way it was designed to do it. That's the way it works. Are you in fellowship with the stresses? When you're fan within your family, when everything goes belly up and it's an absolute chaos, when you at work or when somebody in your world, it absolutely falls apart. And I know that some of you are young and you're learning the process. I'm talking again. I gave you 10 years in this thing. Are you in fellowship with the stresses? Some of you are going to be starting in January and February, or at least learn how to do it. Then the fifth one. He says, in strifes and imprisonments. Now, these two are hard for America to even fathom. I mean, the rest are tough. This is impossible. Nobody in America goes to jail and gets beaten for taking a stand for Christ, at least not yet. Now, if you go to China, there you're going to find it. You go to the Sudan or Africa, you're going to find it. You went back to the East Bloc countries before the wall came down under the old Soviet Union, you'd find it. There are some real persecutions in Christianity, but American Christians don't know anything about it. No, you're going out to get your toenails painted this afternoon. That's, you know, your big distress in life will be, well, they messed up my big toe, see? You know, you're the kind of person that comes and says, how was your day, honey? Oh, it was terrible today. Well, what happened? Oh, the computers broke. We all had to think. That's your distress, you see? <laughs> God's people today can't even conceive of what the Christians of the first century up to even 1500, and even in our own time and some of these other countries went through for their faith imprisonments. You know, Paul's in prison. Most people don't even know where the books in your Bible, five of them are what they call prison epistles. Nobody even knows what they are, who they are, and how they, di they differ from the other books that Paul wrote. I mean, it's hard to imagine the price that those people paid. But take heart, there's still hope for America. The Acts, I think, probably yet to fall. If the Lord holds this thing off, which he may just do, I mean, the book of Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 says, I'm not prophet of doom. I'm telling you the way it works. The problem is why you don't understand is because you're not very much fellowship with the book. Uh, God, the Bible says in Daniel 2 that God changes the times and the season. Maybe just for you and for me, uh, he changed that thing to hold it back so we could have a little fellowship with strifes and imprisonment. I mean, American Christianity wants nothing to upset their comfort level. I mean, you realize that when you get to the judgment seat of Christ and you get up in heaven that you're going to stand side to side with, with people who really pay the price? You're going to look down and see your painted toenails and how beautiful they are with the little designs on them. And I'm not knocking it. I'm just telling you. And you're going to stand next to the person that in the 1500s or the 1200s had their toes cut off in front of them and fried in a pan and made to eat them. That's some comparison, isn't it, huh? I'm telling you. If you think that didn't happen, you don't get around much. You don't read much. 
I'll tell you right now as we stand here, maybe by November, certainly probably by next year. I, I told you Thursday night, for any of you that heard the Prime Minister of Israel's uh, uh, address to the, uh, Mer- uh, to the United Nations last week, there was a line drawn in the sand. And you might as well mark it down. There is a war in the Middle East coming. I guarantee it. And yeah, we got a Muslim president that is soft on Muslim nations. And uh, when America has faced with taking a stand between the Jew and everything else that's going on there, I'll tell you how it's going to go. And then you're going to see some, you're going to see some in stripes and some imprisonments. You're going to see some distress. You're going to see some, 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 uh, some afflictions. Now, from a Bible, I don't like it any more than you do. But from a Bible standpoint, that's a good thing. You know why? Because we need a little fellowship with some of these things. I don't know about you. I don't want to go to heaven and stand next to those person and they talk about what they went through and they say, what did you suffer down there? Well, last week at work, the air conditioner broke and boy, it was hot. (laughs) That's where we're at. Now, the fifth one. Oh, excuse me, number seven, still in verse five. In tumults. Now, a tumult, that's not a, something you get on a doctor's report that is either uh, cancerous or not cancerous. A tumult is a very violent argument or a riot, much like what Paul and the apostles went through in Acts 17, Acts 19. It's, it's a, I'll tell you what, it's a lot like what's going on in the Middle East right now about the American embassies. Uh, over there in uh, all those Middle East countries and even in England and Australia uh, and what will be coming to America to a neighborhood close to you here not too long. Um, it, it, it's, it's, that's what it is. You know, the greatest truth, and most people never get this, Proverbs 28.5 is a great verse. It says, evil men understand not judgment. And that's a great statement. Uh, evil men can't understand the hand of God's judgment. Now, God's people should understand it because they got the Bible, but they don't understand it either. You know, our, 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 the great truth is God always judges nations that reject him by other nations. I don't know why people can't get that. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's even through the New Testament. Our ministry can't shut down. We can't quit doing what God wants us to do just because all America goes into anarchy and has a complete breakdown. That will be our greatest opportunity and our greatest chance. But I'm telling you right now, God's people are not prepared for this. They're not prepared for that. I look back in the Old Testament and I, I, I compare the times that we're in like now, what it must have been right before Shennacherib came down and took the uh, northern tribes into captivity. I, I look at where we're at now and I think what it, is, what it must have been like in 606, right before Nebuchadnezzar came in and, and stormed Jerusalem and destroyed the place and hauled them all off captive. I look at that and I look at the books in the Bible and the prophets, the major and the minor prophets, and I look at those guys, their world was falling apart. They were, many of them were in chains and taken into Babylon. Many of them were beaten and many of them were put in prison. Many of them suffered incredible suffering because of the fact that the job that God called them to do, but every one of them in the midst of the chaos of their nation falling apart had the presence of mind to realize that God still had a message and they delivered it. Now I ask myself today, where are the Jeremiah's today? Where are the men and the women that will stand in the face of our adversity when it all comes down and it's coming down? Where are the Jeremiah's today? 
that will stand and take God's side against a godless side? Where are the Ezekiels today who will take a stand and pay the price? He went into captivity. He was put into chains and hauled down into Babylon, yet he realized that that was his greatest opportunity, and he preached some great messages. Where are the Isaiahs today? Where are the Hoseas? Where are the Haggaiahs? Where are the Zacharias? Where are the, Zac- uh, where are the prophets who, 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 who stood up and preached in the midst of their nation going to pieces. Well, the eighth one, in labors. Now, we always think of that in the form of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, where it says we're laborers together, working and ministering together, and you'd be safe to take that interpretation based on that passage. That's good. But there's a lot more to it than that for a Christian in fellowship with truth, a lot more. And when he talks about labors, he's expanding this thing to our labors and our fellowship based on truth. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor. See that thing? In the word and doctrine. See, there's a laboring in learning and teaching the Bible. It's work. There's a labor in learning Bible doctrine. It's work. If that wasn't enough, he says over there in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, study to show thyself approved unto God a workman. There's work involved. Acts 6.4 talks about a labor in prayer. You know, if you really are a prayer warrior and you really pray, it's work. Hebrews 6.10 talks about the labor of love with people. Boy, that takes work. Philippians 4.3 says the labor in the gospel. Hebrews 4.11 says, labor therefore to enter into the rest of God. You know, to get to the place in your life where you can trust God in everything in your life, you got, that's a work, man. You got to labor to get to that point. There's your fellowship based on truth. Fellowship with the labor and the things of God. Then the ninth one, he says in watchings. Being in fellowship with watching. What a, and this is a, these are great breakdown into great sermons. Uh, here's a good sermon for you. Uh, five watchwords of the Bible for a Christian. Five things a Christian should watch for. A Christian should watch his own words. A Christian should watch his own actions. A Christian should watch his own thoughts. A Christian should watch his companions. And a Christian should watch his heart. That's a great sermon. Now, that's inward. You see how I've told you that everything about your Christian life is inward first and outward? All right, there's, 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 those are the five things inwardly. Now, let me show you what you ought to watch for outwardly. And this is another great sermon, or you can put them together. I don't care. A real sermon will watch for his Lord's return. A real sermon will watch for the evil, uh, uh, evildoers in his church. A real, uh, a real uh, watchman will watch for false teachers. A real uh, a Christian will, will watch and pray, Matthew 26, 41. A real uh, a Christian, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, will watch and be sober. And that sober matches up to 1 Peter 5, 8, that you're to be sober and vigilant for your devil, the devil going about as a roaring lion trying to mess you up. Bible says a, a pastor watches for the souls of his congregation in Hebrews chapter 11, 13, verse 17. And if that weren't enough and a big enough job, he's told to watch all things, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. Eve gave me a great assistance to that last week when we were at the um, um, Culver's. And I forgot we go to Culver's. 
she brought me some dark sunglasses that when you put on, you can actually put them on here and you can see what's behind you. Incredible. They actually work. You put them on and nobody ever sneak up on you again. <laughs> you put them on and you can actually see things going on behind you. You can still see front. If they're angled just right where you can see it. You can't see it from the front. You can see frontwards and backwards. And I told her this week, that was the greatest thing you ever gave me because I just found out as a pastor, I'm to watch all things. Now that's easier. (laughs) I can see forward, I can see backward. Thank you. Thank you, Eve. The tenth one. In fastings. Now fasting is a New Testament concept. The problem is, I'll tell you right now that most Christians don't have a clue of how the Bible lays it out and how it's even to be done. I never in 40 plus years ever found a Christian who really understood. They didn't even know where the defending verses in the Bible were. And of course, it's, we've been through it many times on Thursday night. We're not going to go through it this morning. You know, Psalm 6910 and Psalm 3513. Those are the definitive passages on what fasting is. But I'll just go this far with you this morning. I'll tell you what fasting is not. Fasting is not something you do to get something you want. Fasting is not something you do to get your prayer answered. God's people are the biggest takers on this planet from God. They take God's gospel and never fulfill it. They take God's salvation and do nothing with it. They take God's grace and they take it in vain. We talked about it last week. They take everything from God's church and give nothing back. Uh, a, a pastor that I worked with when I first got into ministry, he's dead now. I learned some tremendous things from him. And uh, he, told, he said one time, and I've never forgotten it. And he said, one of the, well, I think one of the wisest things that I've ever learned about people in the ministry. And we were driving someplace together and we were just talking and I was asking about a situation and, and uh, we were driving to Springfield, as a matter of fact. Uh, he was going to speak down there. And he, he told me, he says, Bob, he says, we always remember this. He says, people will never remember what you did for them yesterday. They're just going to ask you, what will you do for me today? And boy, that is the, one of the truest statements I've ever, I've ever come across in my life. And in all their relationship with God, People take everything that God has. They ask God for everything. They put all kinds of conditions on God. God, if you just give me this, I'll give you the rest of my life. Well, that's so big of you. Well, God, if you do this, if you make my child, God, if you heal my cancer, if you take this from me, if you do this for me, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. God does not bargain like that. And in all their relationships, they always asking God what God can do for them. Not one time does anybody, most people ever sit down and say, okay, God, What do you want me to do for you? That's the fellowship. That's the fellowship. Now, these areas are the things that as we develop, we grow, we come into fellowship with. And as you grow and through these things, then you approve yourself as a minister of God. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, and I'm certainly not going to take time to do it this morning, but there's seven things in the Bible that you are to prove yourself to God with. Seven things. Seven things that a Christian has to prove. And people are coming all around all the time. You know, when I was growing up, well, what are you trying to prove? What's he trying to prove? Well, I don't know for him, but I'm trying to prove seven things. Most God people don't even know what they are. One of the greatest studies you'll ever take. 
Now, we look today at the second section of 10 things, and we, we saw now that the things that we are to be in fellowship with. Next week, I'll show you how you accomplish this by the things you're to be in fellowship with. Remembering the key word today is in. The key word next week is by. All right, we'll hold up there.